the average Canadian will own between four and five homes in their lifetime. Once the average Canadian reaches the age of 18, so from 18 to the end of their life, they're likely to move nine times. Survey uh, of Canadians showed that 28% of Canadians feel the need to move every five years. My, my papa, my dad's dad, uh, when he was a teenager, he got a job in the mailroom at Uniroyal Tire in Kitchener, Ontario. And then, being a non-Mennonite boy, he went to war, World War II, and when he came back, he went back to his job at Uniroyal Tire. And he retired at Uniroyal Tire. The average Canadian today has between three and five jobs in their career. 41% of, three, uh, of Canadians have three to five jobs in their career. 28% of Canadians have between five and 10 jobs in their career. And 16% have 10% or more. In terms of different career pathways, not just a different job as a teacher at this school and then at this school and then at this school, but in terms of completely different career pathways, 35% have two and 41% have three or more. But interestingly enough, that, that's just the beginning of it. Research shows that shorter stints at jobs have become the standard as 51% of people now stay in any role, any one role for under two years. The pattern of more than half of those employed is to change their jobs every two years, meaning over half of those entering the workforce today will have 15 to 20 jobs over the course of their working lives. That is a radical transition to three generations later, three generations post-Uniroyal Tire. <laughs> Why are people hopping from one job to the other so rapidly? I'm sure there are a few factors, some of which are, stand outside the employee's control, but part of it certainly has to be confusion over one's fundamental identity and vocational calling. Stephen Um writes, millennials have been told you can be whatever you want to be. The implicit assumption behind this statement is that happiness can be achieved and fulfilled when you can be whatever you want to be. Boomers, baby boomers, learned to find their security, comfort, and identity in work that often left them unfulfilled. They passed on to millennials, in other words, thanks a lot, baby boomers, <laughs> they passed on to millennials the idea that work provides security, comfort, and identity, but they added the idea that work should provide ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction as well. The result is a generation of individuals who are seeking their identity and fulfillment in their work, but who lack the kind of steadfast commitment, we know this about millennials, <laughs> but who lack the kind of steadfast commitment that might actually afford them some level of proper satisfaction in their work. What's being said? What's being said is this, this idea of identity, of ultimate satisfaction, can be found in something like the right job. You can be whoever you want to be. You can be whatever you want to be. And if you pick right... It will satisfy you fully. One cultural commentator built upon this, noting, instead of asking which jobs will help 
other people flourish, many are now asking, which job will help me flourish? This is reflective of our views on marriage as well. Marriages are no longer about us, but me. We are constantly asking our partner, what can you do for me in this relationship? No wonder there is so much dysfunction in marriages today, he writes. This self-centered orientation can be found in our approaches to both relationships and vocations, careers. And this is where we find ourselves in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It comes after the book of Romans, a few books into the New Testament, as you can see from my Bible, most of the way into the Scriptures. We're working our way through um, this letter, this first letter to the Corinthians this fall, and we've called it 21st Century Church. So just to get you up to speed, this is what we mean by that. Emphasis on the, on the first century is Paul is writing a letter to this church in Corinth addressing the many issues, all kinds of issues that plagued the church in Corinth. We often think longingly, oh, if only we were like the church in the first century, you know, where everything would just be perfect. Okay, Corinth, is it, there's, a, there's a church in Corinth in the first century that is a mess. Like we central can look in and it and be like, that's messed up, right? That church has problems. We should go to the neighboring church, right? So that's happening in Corinth in the first century. And so what we're doing is we're looking in at the issues that were problems, that were causing divisions in the church at that time, and we're applying them to our context. And what we've discovered, if you've been here this fall, we've discovered, man, these issues remain really, really important, like significant, and we need to work through these. And so Paul, in addressing these issues with them, helps us as well because the first century church, the 21st century church looks very similar. So we're going to look at verses 17 through 24 this morning. We've been in, this is our third week in in chapter 7. We're going to spend one more week finishing the chapter next week. And here's what it says starting in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule In all the churches, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For, the, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In Corinth, the church had genuine questions about marriage, divorce, singleness, and as we can see now in our text this morning, Jew-Gentile issues, racial issues, slave-free issues, social issues, and they're wondering, okay, should we change our circumstances now that we're believers? How do I approach my marriage? How do I approach my singleness? How do I approach this issue with someone from a different race? How do I approach my, this issue with someone from a different social class? Should I change my status in these areas? And Paul's response is, let me make it really clear again. Verse 17, let each person lead the life the Lord's assigned. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. 
I think this is really helpful. This is going to be helpful for us this morning because in a world that strives to change our circumstances so much, like feel the itch to move every five years, feel the, the need to change our jobs every two years, in a world that strives to change our circumstances in order to find identity and satisfaction, what we see in this text is that followers of Jesus are invited to embrace our present circumstances and embrace the reality that first and foremost, our identity rests in Jesus and our satisfaction is found in him. So what we want to do uh, this morning is understand the illustrations in the text. There are two and apply the principles of the text. That's where we're going this morning. So first, we need to understand the illustrations in the text. Again, what Paul is getting at underneath these illustrations, what he's pointing to in the illustrations is this. Be a Christian wherever you are. And two illustrations given for this by Paul, beyond sex, marriage, singleness, and being married to an unbeliever. He's already given these examples earlier in the chapter. He now gives two And they are in regards to circumcision or uncircumcision and slavery or or freedom. Let's call one, because it's accurate, the greatest religious barrier of the day, circumcision, uncircumcision. And let's call this whole issue of slavery and free men as the greatest social issue of the day. These are two of the most divisive issues in the early church and Paul's approach to them is absolutely radical. So we need to have understanding before we can apply this rightly. So let's look at the first, the religious barrier of the day, circumcision and uncircumcision. Um, If you're unfamiliar with circumcision, I just invite you to look up at the screen and we'll... No, it's kidding. We're not... Circumcision is nothing, Paul says, and uncircumcision is nothing. Paraphrase, whether you're circumcised or not doesn't matter. That's what Paul's saying. For us today, it doesn't have much impact For them it did. Some came from a Jewish background. Some from a Gentile, a non-Jew background. This was a big enough issue to divide believers and a big enough issue for individuals to take radical steps in their relationship to it. Now, as a loving pastor trying to be a good preacher, I studied on some of the first century approaches to a circumcision reversal surgery. Um, I'm actually going to share none of that with you this morning, but I had to read that, and I've never studied something with a pit in my stomach like I did this last week for you, (laughs) only to find I'm not using that. Okay, so (laughs) again, what Paul's after in this illustration is the point underneath it, retain the place in life in which you were assigned. Paul's saying, let me apply this principle in the religious realm. Was a person uncircumcised when he came to faith? That's fine. He shouldn't get circumcised. Was a person circumcised when he came to faith? That's fine. Don't tamper with it. Thank you, Jesus. Okay? The words of Scripture. Paul is saying circumcision is nothing. In the Jewish mind, though, circumcision was, in a sense, everything. So imagine the force of the words when Paul says, circumcision is nothing. In their minds, they're like, circumcision is, in a sense, everything. It was the external mark of the covenant and signified their place as the people of God. In their minds, a person who remained uncircumcised was outside the covenant blessing of God. 
So those referred to as Judaizers, let me, let me explain who Judaizers were at this time. They were those who came to faith in Jesus in the context of Judaism, who thought that Gentile converts needed to become more Jewish-like in their following of Jesus. We're going to apply this later in the series to things like food laws and stuff like that. How do we interact with this as Christians who might not be Jewish Christians? So Paul's confronting this and saying, you have no right to do that, Judaizers, to pressure Greek Christians to get circumcised. It doesn't apply. It doesn't matter. On the other hand, Gentiles looked down on people who had been circumcised because it was a mark of belonging to a religion of people they had despised. The Greeks despised the Jews, and circumcision was a mark of being Jewish. So some Jewish Christians wanting to be accepted in the Hellenistic, in the Greek world, in the Greek culture in Corinth, this port city where cultures came together. Some of the Jewish Christians there wanting to be accepted in the culture tried a surgical procedure to hide the mark of circumcision. So there were Jewish Christians saying this mark must take place. And there were Gentile Christians saying this must not take place. And Paul comes along and says, this doesn't matter Retain the place the Lord has assigned to you. And he's applying it to circumcision. Were you uncircumcised? Great. Were you circumcised? Fine. Retain the place. However you came to Christ, retain that place. If you've come to Jesus from a Jewish background, great. Praise God for his salvation. If you've come to Jesus from a Gentile background, great. Praise God for his salvation. And continue in Jesus. Paul's saying that this is a distraction And ritual isn't to take the place of obedience. How often do we struggle to learn this? External religious observance in place of internal obedience to Christ. In response to this debate, Paul declares, keeping the commandments of God is what counts. What matters most is not what you are externally, but internally. Emphasis, put the emphasis, how about I put it this way? Put the emphasis on the right organ, the heart, okay? I, all, I was so close, I was so close to calling this sermon, use a scalpel on the right organ, meaning the heart, and then I thought, I like my job, I want to stick around. I still slip it in there in the middle anyways, but... What he's saying is it's not background, it's not heritage, it's not marital status, it's not social status, but who you are in Christ, called a new creation. Live for Jesus there. And the evidence of your salvation, of your call, is that you follow his commands. I mean, this is Jesus. Jesus, John 14, says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Paul's coming along and says, don't worry about this, these external markings. Worry about that, that internal posture, heart, relationship. Follow the commands from, from, from inside out. Now let's look at the other issue, the greatest social barrier of the day, slave and free. Verse 21, were you a bondservant when called? Were you a slave? Were you a servant? Do not be concerned about it. Amazing that he can say that. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant, a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. 
What does Paul call slaves and what does he call those who are free in this text? Slaves, Paul says, are God's freed people. And those who are, quote unquote, free people are Christ's slaves, according to this text. The point is that there's a liberty and a slavery that all Christians share. No matter what our earthly calling is, we're all God's freed people and his servants through Christ. And we're to understand our calling to God as the most important thing, regardless of our situation in life. Now, as we start to talk about slavery for a few minutes, I, I want to kind of give you two notes that, that will help us think rightly. Okay, the first is this. In, in first century Corinth, slavery was not racial slavery. When we read Paul's words about slavery, we, we shouldn't think of the transatlantic slave trade, the African slave trade. We shouldn't think about first century slavery that way. Here's a few reasons why. <clears throat> it's very different. Roughly one-third of the population in the Greek world at this time was in slavery. Roughly a third of the population. Roughly another third of the population had at some time been a slave. So two-thirds of the population had experienced slavery. Also, slaves weren't completely owned by their masters as property, which is a difference. Many or perhaps most of the slaves had rights. They were essentially in an economic contract with their masters. It wasn't uncommon for people to sell themselves into slavery for the advantages that could be gained and then to buy themselves out some years later, which was always a possibility. Some slaves were certainly domestic workers and did manual labor, and oftentimes we think about those who would be enslaved in those terms, but many were well-educated in and held highly skilled professions such as physicians and accountants. Now, I say all that not to lighten the fact that people experience slavery. I don't say that at all. And of course, in the context of this economic exchange, there were, of course, harsh slave owners who abused. The other thing I want to say just to help us frame what we're talking about here is a note that Paul isn't advocating slavery. Slavery was, 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 was a norm at this time. It was prevalent, and Christianity was a, a small movement. So Paul is speaking into an enormous reality that existed and is calling this, this small minority, the Christians, to approach this um, cultural reality in new ways, different ways, particular ways. But we, we, it's really clear, if you do a study on this, that Paul isn't advocating slavery. In fact, we see it in our text in verse 21, where he encourages a slave to obtain freedom if the opportunity arises. Or in verse 23, the fact that we shouldn't be bondservants of men. We should not be. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 1.10, you'd see a list of things that are ungodly, a list of sinners, and included in that list are enslavers. I invite you this rainy Sunday afternoon, read the letter of Philemon in the New Testament later today, and it's a very quick read. And as you read it, you'll discover that Paul's letter to Philemon is a plea from Paul to Philemon to release his slave by the name of Onesimus. What Paul is saying is that while our circumstances aren't unimportant, they matter, they're not to be viewed as ultimate. Paul draws a very interesting paradox in verse 22. He who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. 
Paul is saying that no bondage is as terrible or as enslaving as that from which Christ redeemed us. In him, in Jesus, we are freed from sin, Satan, judgment, hell, and the curse of the law. And every true Christian has already been delivered from the slavery of sin. And if this is true, then your subjection to another as a slave is subordinate to the ultimate freedom you've already received in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have the most complete and glorious freedom possible. So Paul can actually say, circumcised or not, whatever. Slave or free, doesn't matter. In that sense of those things aren't ultimate. It's who you are in Christ. And the evidence of your in Christness, let's make up words as we go, in Christness, by the fruit you produce, by the obedience that you experience in your heart towards God. At the same time, the ultimate bondage is a bondage to sin. And when someone who is enslaved to sin comes to Christ, they actually become a slave of another master, a slave of Christ, a slave of Christ. Paul is saying that those who are free when coming to Christ are now slaves to him. So unless you are enslaved by a slave master, you are nonetheless a slave in this room in that your slavery is to Jesus Christ. To come to faith is both to be, both to be freed from the, the, the worst slave master imaginable and to have a new master in Jesus. You just go from master to master. Every human being does. They're either enslaved in sin or they're slaves of Christ. Paul is also saying that those who are free when coming to Christ are now slaves to him. Every believer is a slave of Christ. Romans 6.22 puts it this way. But now that you have been set free from sin and, and have become slaves of God, he says, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So as a Christian, you're the servant of Jesus Christ, yet you are no longer in bondage to sin and judgment. And this is the critical piece in our lives. This is what is most critical. And so Paul's giving examples of circumstances. We've already looked at a couple, marriage, singleness, married to a non-believer, like these issues. Now we're talking about circumcision and slavery. When we focus our spiritual freedom and our slavery to God, when we focus on our spiritual freedom and our slavery to God, we realize that our status among others isn't ultimate. It doesn't matter whether we're physically bound or free, only that we are both spiritually bound and free. Ultimately, the outward circumstances matter little. It's the relationship we enjoy with Jesus, which is so primary that nothing matters alongside it. Now, maybe you've heard this phrase before, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the idea is that if you have Jesus, you have all you need. You don't need to add to it at all. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But let's, let's get honest this morning, right? We're just, we're just chatting. Let's be honest with each other. In our day-to-day -day lives, it's Jesus plus a bigger house, right? It's Jesus plus a... a, 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 a a more significant, a job with more notoriety. It's Jesus plus cooler friends than the outcasts I've got now. It's Jesus plus 
better vacations. It's Jesus plus a bigger bank account. It's, right? If we're being, I guess if I'm being honest, <laughs> okay, right? So now we need to apply this text, but it's a little tricky, right? Because we're talking about slavery, not a major issue that we wrestle with personally much. Um, circumcision, non-circumcision is kind of a moot issue, right? So it's like, okay, so how do we apply? What we want to do is we want to apply the heart of this text, the principles of this text to our context here, okay? So we have to do a little bit of work because these two illustrations he's giving aren't, aren't dominant in our context. So I'll give you five, okay? Let's go. Here's the first. Your present circumstance is God's assignment for you. We see this from the text. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. The concept that Paul repeats most often in in, in this passage we're looking at this morning is calling. That God called us to salvation. So when we see calling, what the scriptures are really talking about is who you are in Christ. This letter began in chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. A saint is not a dead person where people evaluate the good works of their lives and think, oh, that person was good enough, let's canonize them, that's a saint now. That's not how the scriptures talk about saints. The scriptures talk about saints as anybody who's been called by God unto salvation. Do you know Jesus? You're a saint. Has nothing to do with your sin or lack of sin. It has to do with your salvation found in Christ. And so this is the the, the context of our passage, that you've been called to salvation in Christ. You're his and so what Paul, the way Paul's working that down is to say it's not necessary to change your circumstances then. What's necessary is that you let your calling change you from the inside out. And not only is it unnecessary to change your circumstances, actually God has sovereignly placed you in your present circumstances and you should be actually cautious to leave them, not eager to change them. See, God is sovereign in his assignments, meaning God is in control of all things. He decided where you'd be born, into what family, into what social class. Like, that's not, those aren't your decisions. That's what God has been doing. God is providential. He's overruling the affairs of our lives. The temptation we face is frequently to jump ship for another job, another house, another spouse. And Paul's saying, but you should retain your place. While the assignments the Lord gives may differ, the call of God is one and the same. Sometimes we use gather and scatter language. Like we are the church gathered right now. Central is gathering on Sunday morning. we, We do this intentionally to worship Jesus, to sit under the teaching of the word of God and let our lives be convicted and encouraged by it. We we spur one another on in the faith through our, our, our conversations with each other. We all need this for our faith. And this is the gathering of the saints. But we go from here, this hour and a half we get all gathered together, we go out of these doors and we scatter into the community. And you live in a different neighborhood than I live. And you work in a different place than I work. And you have friends that I don't have. And you have family that I don't have and vice versa. And there's an intentionality to that. And in fact, what this passage is saying is God has assigned all of those things to you. So that you might live this inward life of faith in Jesus out in that circumstance. 
in your sphere of influence. That's the call we have. And what Paul doubles down on here is he says, this is my rule for all the churches. This is my rule in Corinth. This is my rule in Rome. This is my rule at Central. This is my rule for all the churches. God's put you where he's put you. Live for him there. Second, God is much more concerned about the way you live and work than where you live and work. We are oftentimes more concerned, most of the time I would venture to guess, we are more concerned with where we work, who we work with, where we live. God is more concerned about how we live and how we work. He says in verse 19, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Can you keep the commandments of God and be a plumber? Can you keep the commandments of God and be a lawyer? Maybe, maybe, not yet. Can you, be, can, you, can you keep the commandments of God and be a nurse and be a teacher and be an electrician? The answer is yes. Yes, you can. When you come to Christ, you don't have to become a pastor or a missionary. You don't. In fact, when someone tells me, I want to become a pastor, I'm like, try and be anything else. And if you're like, no, it's the only thing I can fix my gaze on, then come on, let's do it. But, but for the most part, like just live for Jesus where you are. Live for him in that context. Here's what I need you to hear. Only sin can keep us from obeying and serving the Lord. Our circumstances can't. Your circumstances cannot keep you from living for God, from obeying him. Only your sin can keep you from living for him. Yet how often do we blame our circumstances as, as to why we can't serve the Lord like we'd like? I'm in, I'm in this situation. I'm, I'm in this work environment. I'm in this family and this political party won and this social development is taking place. And if all of these external circumstances changed, I could really be the Christian that Jesus intends me to be. Now that sounds ridiculous as I say it, but we, we often live that way. I, I can't apply Christ to this. It's just, I need to change this circumstance. And then I can. Paul comes in right in this moment and says, don't let yourself think that way. It's not necessary to change your circumstances. What's necessary is that you let your calling change you from the inside out. It's not where you live and work that matters so much as the way you live and work. It's working as a Christian who is a plumber. It's working as a Christian who is a lawyer. It's working as a Christian who is a nurse and on and on. Switching jobs or houses or spouses isn't a magic bullet. The gospel is just as well suited to individuals in one vocation as another. It can be fully enjoyed in any condition of life. Just to make our conversation here a little more complicated, let me say the third part. The command is not an absolute prohibition of changing jobs or some of our circumstances. And, and we do see this in our text. It says in verse 21, Where the, you, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Pastor Jason just brilliantly preached the text last week. And in that text, in verse 15, he read, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So we're seeing that this isn't an absolute rule. There is... Don't look for any movement of any kind in your life. It's not saying that because we see in our text that there isn't that absolute given. 
We also see from, from Scripture more broadly that the principle um, can be applied in relation to, to switching jobs. There was this shepherd named David. Don't know if you've heard of him. Shepherd named David. He became a king, shepherd to king. There was a tax collector. He became a preacher. There was a fisherman. He became a missionary. So, so the movements can, can happen, but, but what Paul's trying to show us is don't make those moves to try and find what's ultimate there. And in fact, as Christians, we sometimes have to make moves. What would some of those circumstances be? An obvious scenario where change would be necessary is where to remain in your circumstances would cause you to break the commands of God. Paul has just said what matters is keeping the commands of God. Well, what if your circumstances cause you to break the commands of God? Cult prostitute, professional thief, drug dealer. I'm not even sure. Are marijuana sellers drug dealers anymore? How does that work? Can somebody fill me in? Any sort of job where you exploit, any sort of job where there's unethical work, you have to leave that. You, you, you either have to not participate in those kinds of practices anymore, but where your job itself calls you to those practices, you have to leave it. Okay? So we're, we are talking about that as well. A good question for us then in light of this text is, when we become Christians, what must we leave? You don't have to leave your spouse. You don't have to leave your job. You don't have to leave the house you live in. You don't have to leave your family. Look, there are things we have to leave, but what Paul is saying is don't leave anything you can stay with God in. Because the Corinthians are like, I'm a Christian now, so I'm gonna ch like, they thought all of these circumstances had to change. Don't feel a compulsion to change your job, home, spouse, to follow Jesus. Fourth, God's will for your life is your devotion to him. When I was a young adults pastor especially, I was asked this, this question with frequency. What's God's will for my life, pastor? What's God's calling on my life? Can you help me discern that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I can help you discern that, okay? We're going to have to discern. What's, what's God's will for your life? What's God's call? I'm going to help you discern that. And I open up to First Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Go. <laughs> what's God's will for my life? That you be made holy in Christ. No, 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 but what job should I have? Oh, okay. Um, anywhere where you can live a holy life for Christ. What, what university am I supposed to go to? I mean, God probably, like, which one am I supposed to be at? Wherever you can be sanctified. Okay, well, uh, who should I marry? Whoever's going to sanctify you, and really, it's anybody you marry. They're going to sanctify you. <laughs> I find this really freeing. Augustine uh, famously is quoted as saying, love God and do what you will. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Now, a lot's actually being said here. The principle we actually see here in this text, the principle Paul is communicating is precisely what Augustine was, was communicating. Walk closely with Jesus. Find your identity in Jesus. Obey his commands wherever you are. And then do whatever you want. Meaning... Go to whichever college you want, enter whatever profession you want, marry whoever you want, live wherever you want. Why? Well, because if you're walking with Jesus and you're obeying Jesus, just take the next step with Jesus. Like, just take the next step in your life. 
I need to pick which school I'm going to. Okay, take the next step in your life. Walk with Jesus as you decide. Live in obedience to him as you go. The context is your devotion to the Lord works itself out in your singleness, your marriage, your prominent position, or your menial position. God's will for you is your sanctification and for you to walk in fellowship and obedience to him. But someone will say, yeah, but what if going to UFV isn't obedient? What if God wanted me to go to SFU? Now, to some of us, that just seems so silly, but... but but I've had, we, we have so many conversations about this. What if the decision I made back there wasn't God's will for me, and now it set the table for where I'm at right now? Maybe I'm outside of the will of God. What do I do? So these are, these are real questions. I, I, as a young adult pastor, I just started buying mass quantities of the same book, a book written by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. The book's called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. Here's the alternate title he was working with, and I wish he went with this one. It's even more fun. Or, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc. What a great, that, like that's, that would be the greatest book title ever. Look, believe me, Jesus doesn't want you to lay out fleeces. Like, Jesus doesn't want you to lay out fleeces. There's an Old Testament story about laying out of a fleece. He was actually disobedient to God and didn't trust him if you really read the story. He's not asking, inviting us to lay out fleeces. It's moist. What do I do? You know, is it, what? It's weird. What if I get the wrong job, you ask? It's the wrong question, Paul responds. What if I marry the wrong person? Uh, in a sense, you'll always marry the wrong person. Jesus is the only right person. You know, like it's like, what, what are we talking about? What if God wants me to do something really specific, right? I've heard the stories of this person like wealthy in business and God called him, sell it all and go be a missionary. Like I've heard those stories. We talk about those stories in church. Here's my answer. Here's the, here's better. Here's the scripture's answer to your response to, to that question. What if God wants me to do something really specific in my life? Then he'll let you know. See, the normal Christian life is one of walking with Jesus and being obedient to Jesus and taking the next step. Once in a blue moon, God, who can do the miraculous, we believe this as Christians, steps in and makes something very specific, very obvious. And it's really cool to hear those stories. So I'm called to be a saint, to be a Christian. I was called to be a pastor here at Central by, by you. You called me and I was like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Okay, yeah. I'm called by Jesus. Any sort of lesser vocational, whatever, calling, walk with Jesus, obey Jesus. And, and if you're doing those things, do whatever you want. Last, your identity and contentment rest in the objective reality that you belong to Jesus. This is really the heart of the text. Your identity and contentment rest in the objective reality that you belong to Jesus. So all these external factors, these circumstantial factors, and meh, it doesn't really matter. Your identity is in Christ. Bobby Harrington wrote in the Disciple Maker's Handbook, he identifies where our identity in Christ, which is like preeminent and ultimate, can get distorted and hijacked when Christians buy into one of the prevailing myths in our world. So we as Christians believe my identity is in Christ. And yet we live in a, in a world where there are these competing 
prevailing kind of identity stories. No, place your identity here. No, place your identity here. And oftentimes, our identity in Christ gets hijacked in the real world, perhaps by the performance myth. The best way to make your life count is through personal accomplishments others can see, the performance myth. Or maybe it gets hijacked from the comfort myth. Do everything you can to avoid pain and discomfort, and you'll have a great life. Or maybe it's the generosity myth. Find the latest and trendiest cause and go all in. Show that you're a giver. Or maybe it's the money myth. Earn as much as you can. Save as much as you can. A great legacy is all about financial security. Or perhaps the pleasure myth. You only live once, so live it up. Make that bucket list and do it all. Paul Tripp refers to this as identity amnesia in the Christian's life. We've forgotten who we are. Identity amnesia always leads to identity replacement. If you forget who you are in Christ, you will then search horizontally for what you've already been given vertically. If our identity calling is in Jesus, it makes our vocational calling, our careers and whatever, rightly secondary. I heard this advice somewhere. Instead of putting your ambition and drive into upward mobility, pour that good ambition and drive into the right thing. Obedience to Jesus wherever you are. Yes, have ambition. Yes, have drive. And pour it into obedience to Jesus wherever you are. Paul says one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. It appears multiple times in Scripture. In fact, within two chapters of each other, we see the same phrase in chapter 6. It's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible And it's this, you were bought with a price. And given the fact we're talking about slavery here this morning, it's just even more powerful to think that you were bought with a price. See, for a slave to become free, they had to be redeemed. And of course, redemption costs. I've told this story before, I'm going to tell it again. And the reason I feel the freedom to tell it again is a bunch of you watch the same movie over and over and over again. So I'm going to tell the same two-minute story again, okay? I'm giving myself license here. There's a man named Abraham Lincoln. Anybody heard of him? Yes. Okay. Abraham Lincoln was opposed to the slave trade that existed as he was running for president and even in his first uh, portion of being the president. He actually was the one who um, gave the emancipation of slavery um, Emancipation Proclamation partway through his presidency saying no one's allowed to own slaves anymore. Human beings cannot be enslaved anymore. And so before he ran for president, as part of running for president, some of his advisors said, well, because you're for the emancipation of slavery, you should show that. And so they came up with a plan that he would go down to the docks where a ship would port and uh, from Africa where slaves would be brought up, put on the option block, and slave owners would bid on human beings to purchase as their slaves. One by one, slaves would go up on the auction block. Really strong man would get uh, auctioned off. A individual who was sick from the voyage would get auctioned off and not for much because of their health. And so on and so on. And it would go on and on and on. And Abraham Lincoln, standing in the back of this crowd, observes this and just, just waits, just keeps observing. And then a young woman who to the eye, to the individuals in the crowd, could tell was a stunningly beautiful young woman, 
who appeared to be somewhat sick from the voyage, and yet it was clear she was beautiful, came up to the auction block, and of course, these slave-owning men start bidding on her, and the price goes up and up and up and up, and it's left to Abraham Lincoln at the back and a man known as a particularly harsh slave owner at the front. And they keep going and going and going, and eventually Abraham Lincoln wins the auction. Let's picture this like a movie, okay? All people have seen so far is Top Hat in the crowd. They've just seen Top Hat at this point, right? But the crowd parts, and, and this, the, 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 the enslavers, right, these, these uh, auctioneers bring this young woman shackled in the hands, shackled at the feet, and they walk her over to Abraham Lincoln. And the crowd begin to see who it is. He's running for president. And she's looking down at the ground because, of course, she's terrified. And Abraham Lincoln says, unbind her hands and unbind her feet. And so they do. And she's still just looking down at the ground. And so she takes, he takes her by the chin and just raises her face so they're looking eye to eye. And he says, you're free. You're free to be whoever you want to be. And you're free to go wherever you want to go. And she's stunned. And she looks around. And she looks him in the eye and says, if I'm free to be whoever I want to be and I'm free to go wherever I want to go, then I want to go with you. I already said when we talked about slavery, Paul's saying you can remain enslaved because you've already become a free man in Christ because you've been freed from the greatest bondage of all, a bondage to sin. And when you encounter Jesus and he frees you from that, you can still be a slave and you're free. And yet this young woman who was freed from slavery, a lesser slavery, but a slavery to be sure, Her response to that freedom is, then I want to follow you. I want to go with you. This is the natural response of the Christian. If we remember, if we recall, if we hold dear our redemption, and we were bought not with a wealthy man's money for a political cause. No, we were bought with the precious blood of Christ. He died so we could live. He took the hell so we could get to heaven. You have been redeemed, Christian. Redeemed. And you have been redeemed to be a free person in Christ, to live free in Christ wherever he has placed you to be. And the natural response in all of us is, yeah, okay, and I want to go wherever you're going. I want to be with you. And that's Paul's point. You were bought with a price. I want to just jump a couple pages ahead in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians 11 because we're going to take communion together. What a beautiful morning to take communion together because the blood and the cup, sort of the, the, the bread and the cup represent the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. They represent his purchase of us so that we who are enslaved could be made free. 
And he told us, keep, keep having this meal together, disciples. And so with his first disciples, he gathered them in a room just before the cross, and he said this to them. Chapter 11, verse 23, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember the redemption price. Recall the gospel. Hold it dear. Believe it. Live it. Let it change you internally into, and out into the outworkings of your life, wherever you are. This is what we're called to. I'm going to invite our band to come up, and we're going to have communion servers here. And this is, this is how I invite the response to take place. We're going to sing a couple songs of response. And if you say, I follow Jesus, I believe that he purchased me, he, he paid the redemption price so I could be free. If you believe that, if you have a relationship with Jesus, I just want you to come on forward and receive in obedience to Jesus saying, keep doing this in remembrance of me. Just come and receive. If, if, you're, if you're exploring this stuff, hey, that's great. No one's going to even notice you just observing what's going on and staying where you are. I do invite you to um, not take this in a way that we shouldn't, which is to belittle the sacrifice by not even bringing our sin to him in repentance. So I invite you over the course of a couple songs, in the quietness of your heart, just reflect and repent and then you get to step out as a free person, not with a burden, not with guilt, not with shame. You get to leave that at the cross. So you repent, put your hope and trust in Jesus, and then come forward and receive free. What a beautiful privilege. Would you stand with me? And then we will sing. We will take communion together in response. Jesus, thank you for paying the purchase price for our redemption. It cost you absolutely everything. Thank you that you've called us to be yours and to live for your glory. Lord, I recognize that many of us are in difficult circumstances. Lord, I pray that you would walk with us, help us navigate how to live for you where you've placed us, how to, how to do that. I thank you that this text helps us so, so richly with these questions we have in life. Jesus, as we respond by partaking of this Lord's Supper together, it's with great gratitude that we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.